The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for the last three. So good morning. It's my privilege and my joy to be here with you this morning. I'm going to pray before we begin. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for Crossbridge. Thank you for the community of the people of God. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our pastors and the way that they serve us with such sacrifice every week, in fact, every day. And so I ask that you have a word for each one of us this morning, that Lord, where we need our sight to be cleared up, will you do the work that only you can do? Will you empty me of myself? Will you fill me to overflowing with your spirit? Will you anoint and empower my words? May they be yours and not mine. And we ask all of this in the powerful and precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, all the glory and honor for him. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you, how is your eyesight? Do you have 20-20 vision? Or do you need glasses or contacts to see clearly? I used to have such great eyesight that my mom would call me eagle eyes. Because you know, when eagle has this super incredible vision, they can see so far in order to catch their prey. But as I've gotten older, I've needed glasses to see clearly. And the other day, I was in the kitchen with my husband, and I said, because I'm always looking for my glasses, and I said, have you seen my glasses? Where are they? And he said, they're right there in front of you. So I put them on, and of course, they make such a difference. But I was thinking about that, and uh, several years ago, I went with my husband and my girls on a trip to the Pacific Northwest, and we've gone several times. I just love that area. And we visited Seattle. There is a mountain in the outskirts of Seattle that is my favorite mountain of all the ones I've seen in the United States. It's breathtaking. It's left a lasting impression on me. But you want to know the problem with it? That most of the time, it's covered by clouds and fogs and you can't even see it. So I have a picture so that you could see what it looks like with all the clouds and all the fog. You really can't make out the beauty of this mountain. But on a clear day, it does take your breath away. It's spectacular on a clear day. Even those that live in Seattle will stop and take pictures, and they can't help but be captivated by it. And so I brought you some pictures so you could see what it looks like on a clear day. I mean, it's majestic. It looms over the city like this icon. But you know, without clear sight, we can't really see the beauty in things, can we? And so this week, 
in the Gospel of Mark, we come to a pivotal chapter, chapter 8, because it is kind of the climax of the first act, and the disciples are finally able to see the identity of Jesus. And he begins to teach them that he's a king, but he's a king that's going to the cross. And so Mark wants us to see that this morning. He wants to heal us of any cloudy vision or any fog over our eyes that does not allow us to see the beauty of the gospel, like the beauty of that mountain, the beauty of our Christ, and the beauty of who we are in him, our identity. And so I'm going to read to you from Mark. It's a lot of verses, so bear with me. But Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, and it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything. And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell to not tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said... Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this right there about the blind man was a very unique miracle. It is the only miracle in all of the Gospels where it took two tries to attempt from Jesus to heal someone. It wasn't instantaneous. It was a two-stage healing. Now, there are other instances where Jesus gives instructions for someone to follow, but their healing is boom, immediate And so the question is, did Jesus get it wrong? Did his touch not work the very first time? 
Or was he not powerful enough that it needed two touches from Jesus to heal this man? Well, obviously the answer is no. It's not that he was not powerful enough. He's Jesus. He's God. He's the same one that healed and raised a man from the dead. He's the same one that heals with just his thoughts from a distance and doesn't even have to be there. See, miracles are also parables in a sense, and the details are meant to teach us something. And so Jesus, he asked the blind man, do you see anything? And that's the question that he's been asking me. And so that's the question that I want to ask you. Do you see clearly? Do you see Jesus clearly? Because when our perspectives are off, it distorts the entire situation. Have you ever misread a situation or misread someone and you had it all wrong? What a mess that can create, right? We can't have healthy relationships when our perspectives are off about other people, but even less spiritually. If our vision is cloudy, if we are not seeing Jesus and the gospel clearly, we are missing out on what God has for us. See, if we're in Christ, our destination is secure. We know where we're going, but our experience here along the journey changes when our sight is not clear. And so I think that in this passage, it is teaching us three important things. The very first one is that spiritual blindness is a universal condition. The second one is that spiritual blurriness distorts our perspective like that mountain. And the third one, how can we be healed? Spiritual sight requires the cross. That's how we are healed. So spiritual blindness. So to get a really clear view of this passage, we need to sort of go back to the beginning of the chapter. And I didn't read it to you because it was enough. But there's a reason that Mark positions this miracle smack in the middle of it all. Because like I said, he's teaching us something. See, at the very beginning of chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000. He multiplies the loaves and the fish. And right after that miracle, the Pharisees come to him and they are blind. They don't get who Jesus is. And so they tell him, yeah, we'll believe. Give us a sign from heaven. But Jesus knows their hearts. And so he does not give them a sign. Because they are blind. But then the disciples, Jesus begins to tell them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. They're like, what is he talking about? That we don't have enough bread? What is Jesus saying? See, they aren't seeing Jesus clearly either. And this is what Jesus says in verse 17. Do you still not see or understand? Do you have eyes but fail to see? 
See, he's telling them their eyes fail to see. They are still blind to who Jesus really is. And so to teach them right after that, he heals the blind man. Now, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus heals in so many different ways. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, it's not like he needs the details. He can heal with just his thoughts. The details are for us so that we can see the deeper lesson that God is teaching us. So right here, we see the pervasiveness of spiritual blindness. And what do I mean by that? The Pharisees are blind. The disciples are blind. What is he teaching us? That we are all spiritually blind without Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, the religious or irreligious, the moral or the immoral, the rich or the poor, the uneducated or the educated. It doesn't matter if you have a postgraduate degree. Apart from Jesus, we are blind. And so Jesus wants us to see the helplessness of this man. He couldn't get to Jesus because he couldn't see. And so they had to lead him. We need to see our helplessness right there. We are that blind man because blind people need to be led. If right now I tell you to stand up and close your eyes and walk around here, or I put something over your eyes, you're going to bump into each other. You're going to bump into things. Someone is going to have to take you by the hand or at least guide you and lead you. And so what does Jesus do when he's confronted with the helpless blind man? I love it. He's so tender and loving. He took him by the hand and he led him outside the village to heal him. You know what Mark wants us to see? That without Jesus, we can't see. Spiritual sight requires divine intervention. Psalm 146.8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. So, if your eyes are open, what's wrong with our hearts? when we look down on others who don't get it. Have you ever thought, well, they've been coming to church a long time. They're in BSF. They're in Bible studies. Why don't they get it? Because we're blind to our pride. We're blind to so many spots and areas in our lives. Have you ever been in denial? of how little you can change without the touch, without the help of Jesus. That's what he wants you to see this morning. Do you need an encounter with him? See, Bethsaida was the house of the fisher, and the house of the fisher is the house of healing. He wants to heal us from spiritual blurriness so that we don't miss out on all that God has for your life and for mine. The Pharisees, they wanted to be right. They wanted to be right about what they believed. But the blind man, he just wanted to see. What do you want? Do you want to be right? Or do you want to see? 
So that brings me to our second point, because Jesus heals this blind man. And my second point is spiritual blurriness distorts our perspective. Because even when we have a touch, sometimes there's blurriness. Verse 23, let's read what happened. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, this whole scene is a little strange. The miracle begins normally enough. People bring the needy to Jesus. They beg him to heal him. Then Jesus spits on the man's eyes, lays his hands, and he asks him a shocking question. Do you see anything? It's like if Jesus was asking, did it work? Did the miracle work? Is your sight restored? See, that's not a question we expect Jesus to ask. We expect him to say, you're healed, pick up your mat and go. We expect him to be authoritative. Why is Jesus asking, do you see, did it work? And that's what I want us to see, to look beneath the surface. Because the answer is in the blind man's response. He says, yeah. I see it worked, but I see blurry. People look like trees. It's obviously he had had sight before. He wasn't born blind. He knew what people looked like. And he says, my vision is unclear. See, God wants us to understand that sometimes spiritual sight and healing in your life happens in stages. Sometimes. It takes more than one touch from Jesus for you to see him clearly, for you to grasp his love clearly. He brought you to faith and your eyes are open. But sometimes we're missing out on all that he has. It's this process of illumination where his love begins to become real in our lives. You know, sometimes we look at the great apostle Paul, we say he's on the road to Damascus, boom, he's blind. And then everything changed, and it did. But do you know that the Spirit took him out into the desert for three years in order to teach him? And then what about Peter in this passage? In the very beginning, he's blind. But then in verse 22, when Jesus asks the disciples, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. He went from blind to sight. He gets it. This is a huge statement for a Jew. Peter is saying, you, Christ, are the long-awaited Messiah prophesied in Genesis 3.15. The Christ, you're the anointed one, the king. But then what does he do right after that? When Jesus begins to tell him that he must suffer, be rejected, that he must die and resurrect, Peter is outraged. He rebukes him and he says, absolutely not. Why? Because his perspective was blurry. He saw Jesus like a tree 
walking. He did not have a clear grasp of the gospel. He didn't want some weak Messiah. He wanted a Messiah of his own doing, a Messiah that would meet what he thought was best to be liberated for Roman rule. And Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan, because he wanted him to see the beauty of the gospel. He wanted him to see it. See, Jesus has to smash the wrong views in our lives because they keep us from understanding who he is and his great love for you. We skim the surface if he doesn't. See, there's this great sermon by a pastor. His name was Lloyd-Jones, and he said, see men as trees walking. And the point of it was that many times, as believers, we're stuck. We're stuck in between touches of the Lord. And we stay stuck. But God doesn't want us there. See, we have to learn from this blind man. He had courage and he had humility. He wasn't satisfied to stay with blurry vision. What did he say? He said, I see blurry. He admitted his need. He asked Jesus for more. Have you ever done that? Have you admitted your need? Have you admitted the areas that you don't see clearly? Those relationships that maybe aren't going the way God would want them to go? It takes courage and it takes humility. See, we need to be dissatisfied, holy dissatisfaction to live the Christian life with blurry vision. How have you adjusted to living that way? Have you adjusted to living with shame and guilt? Have you adjusted to living with anger and unforgiveness and resentment? Have you adjusted to living with a lack of love in your heart, in your relationships, and with other people? Have you ever wondered what it's like to be on the other side of you when you adjust to that? What it's like to receive the way you speak, the way you treat somebody, the way you act? Have you ever asked God to show you clearly your part in those relationships? Are you settling in your experience of God's love. Because this is the beauty of our king that went to a cross. He's not a king that sits up high on a throne, unapproachable and mighty. He's a king that came near. He's a king that leads you by the hand. He's a king that desires to touch you. He's a king that desires to heal you. He's the king that gave himself fully for you and died on a cross. And so that leads me to my third point. Spiritual sight requires the cross. And I love how the Bible describes the healing of the blind man. So I want to read it to you again. Verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Yes, Jesus healed this blind man physically. But he wants us to see the spiritual healing that he wants to do in all of our lives. 
And he's very clear with Peter, with nearsighted Peter, who does not want a king to go to the cross. He's very clear about what it will involve. And Jesus says two things. The very first one is that Jesus must go to the cross. And the second thing he says, that we must take up our cross. So the very first one, the cross. See, Jesus did not say that the Son of Man, one of his favorite titles for himself, will suffer. He said, must suffer. Do you know what he meant by that? That it was voluntary. That he voluntarily came knowing that he would die, that he would suffer, and that he would resurrect. Meaning that he was a king, like a no other king. He didn't come to take power. He came to lose it. That he was a king that did not come to save his life, but to give it away out of love. Every other king wants their lives saved. They have all of these soldiers and protections, even the presidents, in order to save their lives. Only Jesus is the king that came to give his life for you. So why must Jesus suffer and die? Why? Because we have a debt of sin. And the only way that God could forgive us and not judge us is by paying that debt himself and dying for us. See, it's that great exchange that happened on the cross, that beautiful exchange. On the cross, Jesus took your record. He took all your blurry vision. He took all your sin and all your mistakes, and he took it upon himself. And what does he give you? His perfect record. He lived the life that we are incapable of living. And he died the death that each one of us deserve. And so on the cross, we receive the very first touch of spiritual sight. On the cross, we know that we are loved and forgiven and justified. But God wants to give you more. He wants to give you more. And so the second thing is he says that we must take up our cross. But why would Jesus die? So we know he must or we wouldn't be forgiven, but why would he? Why would he die for us? And there's only one answer, is there? Love the unconditional love of God. See, God's love for you is not based on any conditions because guess what? You already broke them all. You broke every law. It says that Jesus died while we were still sinners. He is the only being in the universe capable of loving you unconditionally. Everybody else loves you with conditions. They love you if you meet a need, if you serve a purpose, if you make them happy in a way, if you have some kind of utilitarian value for them. But true, unconditional love means that you care more about the other person's happiness. In fact, their happiness is your goal. It means that you love without needing anything in return. You simply love. It means you love even if they never love you back. 
It is radical love. It is vulnerable love. It means that you give yourself fully for that other person. Who can love like that? Who loves you like that without any conditions? And this is the reality. We all need that kind of love because we were created by a God of love. We all need to be loved by someone that we don't earn it and that we don't deserve it and that we don't do anything for it. We need to be loved by someone that simply just loves us. You know why? Because that's the only love that will bring security to your heart because that is the only love that you can never lose because it has nothing to do with you. Philip Yancey said this about God's love. God loves because of who God is, not because of who we are. See, God loves you because of who God is. So we're loved, we're forgiven, we're justified, and we need to take up our cross. Let me read to you verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what does it mean to take up your cross? Well, the word life in the Greek is from the word psyche. And what it is trying to convey is your identity. It's selfhood. What it means is that Jesus says to you, I give you a new identity in me. I'm giving you a new reputation. Forget about all the things you've done in your life. Forget about your past. You have a new reputation in me. You have a new way of living, a new focus for life, a new perspective. And guess what? If your family of origin didn't love you, you have a new family. I am your father and you have the family of God. So it means that you can stop trying to save yourself because Jesus already did it. You can stop trying to work to feel worthy and valuable and affirmed because Jesus did all the work for us. It means that you can stop trying to build your identity on gaining things in this world because Jesus is giving you so much more. See, that brings freedom from trying to prove yourself because your identity is in Christ, his perfect record. Does that not bring freedom to your hearts? So you are free from the criticism of others. Because you have the favor and the approval of the most important being in the universe. You're free from worrying about your weight because you're fully loved and fully accepted. You're free from seeking the approval of everyone and everything around you in your job, in your relationships, because you have favor and approval from God. It's an amazing identity. See, on the cross, Jesus entered into a total eclipse of darkness so that he could give you sight. On the cross, Jesus in a way lost his identity because he was separated from the Father to give you yours. And when we see Jesus up on the cross, not just 
because we see it in some philosophical way, but when we see it personal for you, with your sins, with your life, then our sight begins to clear up because spiritual sight is seeing the gospel clearly. It's seeing this unconditional love that you have now, not when you get better. See, God loves you just as much when you're in the middle of the worst argument with someone than when you're doing it all right. Because it's not based on you, it's based on God. And when that transfers into our hearts, this healing begins to happen. We begin to understand this unconditional love that we can't relate to because we're incapable of it until his love enters and then we're able to love others. We need to receive his love in order to love others rightly. So what does it mean to take up your cross? It's to know your identity in him, to take up Jesus's unconditional love for you. So do you see clearly? Do you need another touch from Jesus to experience his love? Do you need another touch in your relationships? Do you need another touch in an area of your life of shame or guilt or doubt? See, none of us have such great vision that we can say, no, I don't. Because all of us can be taken deeper into the gospel, deeper into the love of God. And so when our eyesight or when my glasses get blurry, when I don't see the beauty of the majestic mountain of the gospel looming over the city, looming over my life and my heart, I need to go back to the gospel. I need to remind myself of these truths. And that's what you need to do. So I began to ask you, how is your eyesight? How is your spiritual eyesight? Let Jesus take you by the hand. Let him give you another touch in your eyes and in your heart because you know the love that transforms is the love of Christ. It is the only transforming love. Allow him to love you. Believe it.